morning, good afternoon, or good evening, and welcome to Inside the Writer's Studio, the podcast where we talk with writers about their lives, their craft, their business, and their latest work. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and our podcast is sponsored by Bookmarks. Bookmarks is a literary nonprofit whose programs include the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas. Come visit Bookmarks at our community gathering space and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Inside the Writer Studio is also proud to be an affiliate of Libro FM, the audiobook platform that supports your local independent bookstore. Stay tuned at the end of the podcast for more information on Libro FM and a special offer. My guest today is Laurel K. Hamilton, whose most recent Anita Blake vampire hunter novel, Smolder, has just been published. Laurel, welcome to Inside the Writer Studio. Well, I am glad to be here today and uh, to talk about the new book. Great. Well, so 2003 marks 30 years for this character, Anita Blake. And, you know, I know there are some fictional characters who have been around for 30 years through multiple novels, but, you know, we could probably count them on on two hands or maybe on one hand. Um, What are the challenges that you face uh, in sustaining a character over that long a period of time? Well, interestingly enough, um, well, one, I have faced the fact that most new writers, even the right series, you're lucky if the first book sells well enough that the publisher wants more books. Mm-hmm. That's the first big hurdle right there. Yeah. Um, I had another series, they, I got my first book published and it didn't sell well enough as many first novels don't. So that series died and write with one book. So when I got the first contract for Anita Blake, there were three books on it. And I remember thinking, at least there'll be three books in it. Um, I actually planned ahead. Um, I read at that time in the 80s, there were just mystery series that had long running series. I didn't know if I would succeed, but I planned for success. So I read them and I thought, how are they doing such a long running series? And I found that even in great series between book five and book eight, there's at least one book that shows a lack of enchantment. They're falling out of love with their world or their main character. And I thought, how do I avoid that? One of the reasons I mixed genre is I thought that plain mystery, just straight mystery, which I love to read, but I thought as a writer that might bore me eventually. So one of the reasons I mixed all the genres together is I thought with the supernatural and the folklore and the mythology that I've loved from childhood, uh, plus the interpersonal stuff, I thought maybe it would be a big enough world and interesting enough that I wouldn't have that slump as a writer. And as I'm holding book 29 and 30 years, I think I was right on that because I sit down to every book and I can't wait to play with my imaginary friends. So, so right there is, I decided at the beginning, I wouldn't make it static. I would give myself a big enough world and I would let my characters grow and change because I think that's also what keeps it interesting for me. I'm not just sitting down and writing the same formula with the same characters for 30 years. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really noticed about this is that, I mean, if we think of some re- recurring characters as being sort of, we just have an idea of who they are because they're always the same in every book but Anita Blake has a has a character arc that has gone for 30 years now tell, tell us a little bit about how her character has changed between the beginning and, and where we are now in, in book 29. Oh wow um well at the beginning uh 
she is she is very black and white she's 24 when the series begins because that's how old i was mm -hmm. um and for years and years every character i wrote was exactly my age <laughs> um so the world is very black and white she sincerely believes that vampires are evil that killing them is a, a legal vampire executioner she sincerely believes it's not murder because they are monsters and they kill other people and she's making the world safer um, she believes that uh, she believes that she will hopefully date and find that one person to be with. She's, she has a very unusual job and she has the ability to raise the dead and raise zombies for history. You know, somebody who wants to know what happened at this one battle, raise somebody and ask. Though you have to be careful of that because I have put up that if you are murdered, it, you cannot be raised as a zombie because you will raise as a violent zombie and try to kill whoever killed you. Um, but she's trying to have a very ordinary life at the beginning, just a regular life. And she believes life is fairly black and white, fairly simple. And, and like all of us, I think, to start off in our 20s, as we go through our 30s, because she's, she's now like 31 or 32 in the series, she starts to realize the world's more gray. It's not as simple as she thought. Mm -hmm. Uh, the end of the first book, the last line of the first book, Guilty Pleasures, is I don't date vampires, I kill them, because Jean-Claude is trying to woo her from the beginning. And now here we are. And, and there's no way not to have spoilers. There's just no yeah. way. It's, it's 29th book. So here we are in Smolder, 20, book 29, and she is engaged to be married, and a wedding is being planned with Jean-Claude. Yeah. Um, so... And she is also part of, a, she's also not, not trying for monogamy. She's been polyamorous since about book 10. And so her worldview, she now understands that vampires are not evil, that they are, they are people. They are people first, vampires second, which is how I write them, how I always yeah. wrote them. Yeah. And she's met more people over the series, human beings that have been more evil than the, the supposed monsters. And you talk, yeah, you talked a minute ago about um, about the way you combine genres, and 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 we're kind of starting to hear about it as you talk about these these relationships. But what what is it about these, especially about the these two genres, the paranormal and the sort of hard boiled detective? I mean, at, at first glance, a lot of readers might think, "Oh, those two things don't have anything in common." But what what is it about them that that how that you like to sort of work together with those two? Well, I really, like I said, I have loved ghost stories and horror from a very little girl and always been attracted to that. I actually didn't find mysteries, hard-boiled detective fiction until after college. Mm -hmm. So it came to me late. But as soon as I read it, I just fell in love with the genre. I was just so in love with it. And one of the interesting things at the beginning when I was reading, there were only two uh, women writing at the time. Uh, Sarah Paratesky and, um, oh, I've just blanked. And I know her name. I know the books, uh, the alphabet books. Mm -hmm. Sue Grafton. Sue Grafton, yeah. Yes. And back in the 80s when I was reading these, the men, like the Robert B. Parker, Spencer series, that was a revelation that led me, of course, to, to you know, the original, uh, the original parts of noir fiction. And the men got to got to cuss, got to kill people without feeling too bad, and sex was casual. The women barely got to cuss, 
if sex was at all happening that had to be off stage, very sanitized, and if they feel some killed somebody, they had to feel really, really bad about it. Mm-hmm. And I thought I wanted to even the playing field. I wanted a main character that was tough enough to play with the boys. I may have overcompensated just a little. It was me. <laughs> um, and so I knew what the mystery part I wanted for Anita. And then the, like I said earlier, I thought I would be bored if I just did straight mystery. As much as I love to read it, I thought writing it over and over. So I put the love of Supernatural with the hard detective fiction, and it actually worked really, really well. Um, uh, about the fifth to sixth book of Anita, just as it was beginning to really catch on and, and get hot, um, I was at a convention and I had a very well-known uh, mystery editor who told me, who told me I could tell this story, I just can't tell who her, her name. And she said to me that she loved my series and she was so glad that I'd added the horror. She said, because um, at that time, and I think it's still true to this day, that as a woman writing a female character, especially a first person female character, I would not have been able to have the level of violence, not even the sexual content, because I really hadn't entered yet, but I wouldn't be able to write the level of violence and toughness for my main character if I had not been writing horror too. And that she still has to tell female, had to tell female writers that they couldn't write certain scenes because of being female in the mystery field. But by joining it with horror, horror has no limits on that kind of thing. And that allowed me to be able to write a mystery that if it was a violent mystery, it could be as violent as needed to be. I don't do gratuitous violence. I don't do gratuitous anything. It has to earn its place. Everything has to earn its place. But if you're writing about violence and violent crime, I think that you owe it to show that it's horrible. Um, People should not gloss over the violence and make it more attractive than it is. It's not. So one of the challenges I wonder about, because I'm I'm a first-time reader of this series. So the first book I read is book 29. Oh my. <laughs> so so my question is, and I mean, I think I think this is a question for anybody who writes series. How do you how do you satisfy your long-term fans, but still, you know, engage new readers who may be coming to the series for the first time on in book five, in book 10, in book 29? That is a real challenge serious challenge. Um, it is a constant struggle to um, to make sure that your longtime readers don't get don't feel like they oh we already know this why are you telling us again and at the same time the new readers you have to give them enough information so they know what's happening in the world and who the characters are and it is a hard balance. Um, I, I flatter myself and fans tell me readers tell me that that they can come in. I have so many people that come in at each new book, new readers, and apparently I'm doing a good enough job that they finish the book and then they go back and get the other books. But but it is a serious challenge. One of the things that I started with from the very beginning, again, for reading widely in other series, um, is every opening is different. I do my best to make sure that no matter where you pick it up in the series, you will not see the same opening. You will not be confused. Have I read this book? Have I not? Have I seen this opening? Have I not? I really strive that every book's opening is unique so that though it's a series, 
no reader, no matter where you are, you're not going to pick it up and say, I've already read this opening. And I think that helps both for new readers and for, for readers that have been with me the whole time, that they, they know what they're reading and it doesn't sound like one of the other books at the very, very beginning. You talked a little bit about your your love of, um, you know, I think one one place I read you call it things that go bump in the night of, of monster movies and ghost stories. And, and that definitely, um, you know, plays into these novels in a big way. But you also describe yourself as a non-practicing biologist. Um, <laughs> talk, talk to us a little bit about how your background in science um, becomes part of these novels that, you know, are essentially are creating a new a new science in terms of, you know, having vampires and yetis and everything else? Um, I think uh, I, I had an aunt uh, and she met well, or maybe she didn't. I don't know. She said to, uh, she said to me after I had become a writer and had my career, she says, how does it feel to have wasted all that money on college for the biology degree? I guess she didn't mean well, did she? Anyway, I said, I use my biology degree every time I sit down at the typewriter or the computer. I, my science background helps me make my, my, my werewolves and shapeshifters of all kinds, and even my vampires more realistic because through my science, I learned how to research things. And I will research the real animal first for any animal group I'm doing. I do, I do books and books of research. I will, uh, you know, so I know as much about the real animal before I make it my fictional were animal. And I think science, being a scientist, um, you know, I have the degree and I, I've started to call myself a biologist because I was on a panel of other people who actually worked as biologists. And they said, did you get your degree? And I said, yeah, I got my degree. I just never earned my living with it. And she says a lot of people didn't get to earn their living with their biology degree. And the audience agreed with her. So um everything i do goes through that science that 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 reality filter of how does it work what would it really be like some conceits you have to give that that vampires are that you have vampires but in um i wrote smolder and then i wrote the next book in the series almost back to back so i had a moment of going was it in this book or that book um but I do go into the science, either in this book or the next book, of um, I've been researching some of the neurobiology, some of the new things they've done in, um, in mirror neurons and, and, and really what constitutes brain death. They have better and better tools to figure that out. And what is the difference between somebody that is in an irreversible coma and what is somebody's brain uh, like in somebody that isn't irreversible? And they're starting to study that more with better tools. And, and that's going to play into what is a vampire in my world? How does it happen? Um, um, I think I'm, I'm sure one of the challenges in, in writing a series is the fear that you're going to get to book 20 and go, oh, I really want to do so-and-so, but I can't because I set up this rule back in, in book 15. Uh, how, how far ahead do you plan? And, and do you ever find yourself in that situation where you wish, you know, you had done something different earlier in the series to, to give you a certain freedom later on? 
I haven't yet run into being upset with my world building rules or my magic rules or supernatural rules. They're, the supernatural and the magic kind of blend together. World building can be its own separate rule set. Um, so far I haven't. I will tell you what I have run into is I wish sometimes I haven't killed off a character. Mm-hmm. I don't kill off many characters, but there are two that I wish I hadn't. Maybe, okay, if it's not a bad guy, I regret any loss. And and there's three characters that I wish I had not killed off. They had more story and, and the story is still in my head, but they're dead and they're really dead. It's not a comic book ending. They didn't fall off a cliff at Reichenbach Falls. I cannot bring them back. They are gone. And um, so I regret, I regret character death because that's the end of their story in my world and my world's the only place they live. But, but, my, but the rules that I've set up, uh, a lot of them are based on actual folklore. Um, other than the fact that I have taken the modern tact of my vampires being uh, attractive. Uh, early vampires are not, but yeah. I explain that in my world because the earlier vampires that were making more vampires, it was a different strain of vampire. And that's why you get that break when vampires start to be more attractive uh, sometime in the 1700s. Um, uh, and, and Dracula, the novel Dracula and the uh, shorter novel Car- Carmilla, those were, again, that was the beginning of the attractiveness and sexualization of the vampire. Before that, they were much closer to ghouls than zombies. Yeah, yeah. You know, to, talking about, again, the long-term planning of the series, and this is something I, I always ask, with slight trepidation when I'm talking to someone who's writing a series because I don't, I don't want you to give any spoilers, but do you have in mind how this series might end? And is that something that is, that is part of your overall plan or are you just working a few books ahead and letting it go where it goes? Well, uh, I see this as a mystery series with supernatural in it. Mm-hmm. And so mystery series don't have that big end. That's more a fantasy series thing where you have the big end. For Anita, I see this as a mystery series. So no, there's no big end. There's no, um, there's no thing. Um, people are really, uh, the fans are really invested in the wedding planning and the wedding coming up. And I'm not a wedding person, which is interesting. And so I'm really gonna have to pull out the stops for something that I don't really understand. I've, I've been married, I am married, but I don't, I don't understand the really huge romantic wedding. I, I, it's not my thing. And I have had people think that, that I planned the wedding from the beginning and that that was the big goal. No, I would have bet good money, good money, serious money at the beginning of the series that we would never be marrying Anita off, especially not to, not to a vampire. This would never happen. And so, um, no, I have no ultimate end and I don't know. I don't know if I will still be in the mindset where I'll be wanting to write Anita when I'm 80, <laughs> but, but so far I am 30 years in and still having a wonderful time and still learning new things each book about the characters in the world and getting new fans with each book. So, you know, um, no, no ending in sight. Um, it's also first person narrative. Yeah. So it's really, it would be really difficult. I think it'd be harder have a big end with a first-person narrative yeah yeah i mean she's aging more slowly than most of the rest of us so you can probably you know keep going for a while (laughs) i i i read an essay by agatha christie when i was in high school 
and she said that she wished she had made Perot and Miss Marple younger. That by the time she finished the stories, Miss Marple had to be over 100. And she wished she had made them younger. And I took that very much to heart. That's one of the reasons that Anita is aging slower, though we have updated the technology in the books. Um, just like the Travis McGee series at the beginning, I think he is a veteran of Korea. By somewhere in, later in the series, he's a Vietnam War veteran. And um, it is it is a mystery conceit like with Nero Wolf. Um, you know, they start in the 1930s, but they have updated their, they've updated to present day by the time I think it ends in the 70s. And, but Nero and Archie have not aged, are, are barely at all. So it's traditional the mystery to be able to update if you go long enough. So somewhere in the middle books, I just updated all my tech because the first book, Guilty Pleasures, we have pagers and no cell phones and have to find telephone booths and um so now the text updated it's modern day but she's only she's aged about 10 years so no the timeline no longer no longer matches we've yeah. updated yeah. so you you talked about how this novel begins with uh, in the first scene where we're um you know trying on clothes for a wedding it begins with sort of um wedding preparations and so you know first of all i want to put you in touch with my daughter who's a wedding planner and does giant <laughs> romantic weddings and she can be your consultant you know but uh, I, um, I, I i may i may need the help it, the, she, the fans are expecting a really spectacular show you know she, she's done some spectacular weddings i don't think she's done one yet where one of the people getting married was a vampire but um pretty pretty close to that <laughs> okay um, but there's there was a there was a line that really struck me um in in that first scene and it's actually not Anita um it's it's her friend Edward and she's talking about um his relationship with his stepson and she says it wasn't about genetics it was about love and I wondered if you could just you know sort of building on that just to talk about the role that love plays in in, in this novel and in the novels in general um because I think that's something we don't always see in especially in sort of the hard-boiled detective like you said usually if there's sex it's casual sex talk talk a little bit about the role of love in this series well i mean let's face it without love what's the point now and i don't just mean romantic love too many people uh too many people emphasize romantic love above all and uh their friendship friendship is love i think i think it's byron's quote um lord byron's quote uh, that friendship is is love without its wings, and but it is still a type of love. Uh, there are so many blended families out there that you know you have a child and you give birth and you love it. But uh, my my household is a blended family, and you the love of a parent with a child. If you do not have love to make you secure to help give you a base, the best thing we can give a child is a loving, supportive base from which to launch the rest of their life. And early on, the hardball detective is so bleak and the early books show that she's so unattached, so detached, and it's very bleak and just the crime. And one of the interesting things is, as she becomes, she starts to have relationships. We also find new friendships. So it's not just about romantic love, it's about all of it. And Edward and she have been best have been friends at the beginning. He's a, he's almost a villain. He's, 
he's a, a rival more than anything. And over the series, they both grow in the fact that she finds love, unconventional love, and it works with her life, gives him the courage to look for it in his own self. Um, so this, this book, in fact, the whole series is really about love and how, how interconnection with other people, that's really what it's all about. You can't, if all you're doing is going to crime scenes and solving crimes, yes, you're helping make the world better. But when you're alone and you close that door at home, you need something. Now, for all of those people that are just great being alone, I like being alone too. And, and if that works for you, it does. But even then you have friends, you have connections, you have other things. We, we need that other connection. Yeah. Or it just, after a while, it gets too grim. So let's talk about stakes for a minute. In, in this novel, and, I, and I, again, I'm trying not to do spoilers, but I think this is more or less stated on the dust jacket. Um, Anita's trying to, she says, keep everyone human and vampire alike from being consumed by primeval darkness. That's Those are pretty high stakes. <laughs> it um, is. And so, yeah. I mean, what I wonder is, first of all, um, is are the stakes, is that something you know when you when you start the novel? And and secondly, do you feel a, a pressure or compulsion to to raise the stakes with each subsequent novel in a series? I actually uh I actually didn't. I, I actually purposely didn't let myself get trapped into what I call the James Bond trap. Mm -hmm. Every book is more spectacular and and other series where where you save the world and 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 you start saving the world every book. Um, so I purposely tried not to be the stake of the world at, at risk every book. But, but as the series has gone on and Jean-Claude has been put in this place of where he is the king of all the vampires energetically throughout the United States. So if someone gains control through him or he loses the control, then suddenly they have thousands of legal citizens that are vampires and they would be in control of it. And if they have ill intent, then that is a disaster. That, that is a disaster. So, so that is how high the stakes have grown. Um, and, and, you know, being in charge, being a leader is a huge responsibility. And I think that, I think that too often politics is played more like it's a game like it doesn't have the stakes of the world or, or the country. And it does, it really does. In this book, magic makes it so. The energetic connections make it so. But I think all politics in the end, that is what it's about. It is about saving the world or destroying it. And you really do need to filter all your decisions through that. I mean, that brings up an interesting question that I had about, you know, this. I think it's fair to say that this series is it sort of leans on the fantasy side of the fantasy reality divide. I mean, in the real world, we we don't have vampires and we don't, but, but there are a lot of things about this that to me feel like they are, um, you know, addressing at issues that we have in the real world. I'm thinking particularly in this case about um, Anita's grandmother's attitude towards, towards vampires, um, yes. which, you know, is, pretty racist basically. Um, so to what extent do you, do you think about incorporating contemporary events, contemporary issues? And, and also to what extent do you think fiction is a, is a good 
form for us to sort of address societal issues? Well, I think by having having the horror element and the fantasy element, it does allow a platform for talking about hard, hard topics without it being so, so harsh. It allows you to talk about things like um, early in the series, I actually wasn't the one who figured out that how some people treated the vampires and the shapeshifters was, was, was a racist, was how you treat racists or somebody early on for the vampires and the, especially the shapeshifters asked if I had copied that, uh, people are, are fearful around shapeshifters for catching it. Did I copy that attitude about AIDS? And I hadn't done it consciously. But so many people over the years said that this is what it reminded them of, that I finally just embraced it and went, you know, you're right. I'm a product of my time. So it all goes into that, it all goes in that deep subconscious place we write from. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's my fans that point out what I've done before I realize what I've done. And so by this time, yes, I've embraced it. And, um, the level of prejudice that her grandmother has is, is her grandmother's not a pleasant person. She yeah. just isn't. And that's an understatement of epic proportions. Um, we are going to see more of her on stage uh, next book and she doesn't get any better to be around. <laughs> well, uh, let's, let's talk about craft for a little bit. Um, you, you mentioned before that writing in the first person um, meant that, that's that's a sort of one of the limitations of that is maybe you you wouldn't have a, a you know a big grand ending of the whole series because what are you going to say I just died or something like that you know um, but what what do you see as the both the advantages and the limitations of of that choice that you made now thirty years ago I guess to to put this in the in the first person well most everything I've written is first person most of my short stories are first person. Um, I have two other series. They're both first person. I am just, I prefer reading first person and I prefer writing it, but especially writing it. Um, uh, even the very first novel I wrote, I wanted to do first person. I didn't have the confidence in me myself as a writer. So I did limited third person perspective mm -hmm. and uh, I don't find it limiting. And it is, I know it is, it <laughs> is because it means that I, I can't, I can't have another camera over here telling me what really the motives are behind, you know, the villain or the person that's trying to date her. I can't take my camera and peek. Um, but I am a very linear thinker, very linear thinker. And so for me, first person allows me to do that. And so if my main character doesn't know it, neither does the reader, neither do I. And I don't find it limiting. But that's because for whatever reason, as a writer, that is, that is how I prefer to write. That is my rhythm of how I prefer to write. First person just flat works for me. And um, I, I don't, I, I have tried to write in a more third person perspective and I just don't enjoy it as much. Now, we, we touched on this before that, that obviously Anita lives in this world that in many ways, looks a lot like our world, except yes. that there are trolls and yetis and vampires and and were animals of of various types. What what advice would you have for readers on the subject of world building? What do you find uh, makes that successful? Um, 
Well, first of all, pick things that you enjoy. Don't just build a world for you to walk around in without putting elements that you enjoy. For me, um, the biology, I'm a biologist, so I put in that. I love the supernatural horror. Tolkien was a linguist. Yeah. So really, in some ways, he, cre he created all of his world just so that somebody could speak his languages. Yeah, yeah. And that is really the key to world building is you take your passion, not just your passion for writing, not just your passion for, for certain characters and certain themes, but what interests you. Make that a foundation of your world building so that you're not just interested in your characters, but that you're interested in your world and continue to be interested in it because it has something that is personal to you that is a belief or just just something that that just absolutely interests you and has interested you for most of your life if you can put that in your world building then you will create something that you continue to enjoy and that is uniquely yours yeah yeah now as we as we move into this novel i said we start out with um we're trying on things for the wedding and then we get to the crime uh, and the crime scene that sort of kicks off the main mystery and conflict of the book i think around chapter five or so um tell tell us a little bit about your view of the structure of a novel and, and do you do you write with a certain structure in mind i'm gonna have you know a big event here and a big event there or do you just sort of let it flow some of the books are structured more like a traditional mystery. A mystery starts page one and you go through. You have the world build, world around it, the world building around the fantasy, and usually uh, the victim is either uh, either a supernatural or who done it or how it was done is supernatural. Mm -hmm. One of the things I make sure is that the reader always knows the rules of my system so that by the time they solve the mystery, they don't feel like they've been cheated. But um, I'm 29 books in. And so some books, the interpersonal relationships and the world building in general has to take center stage, more like a fantasy novel than a mystery novel. And that used to bug me. I at early on, I was very, very mystery structured. But as the world got bigger, I began to go, you know, I've mixed genres for a reason. And so sometimes some books are more more structured like a fantasy novel or more structured like a horror novel. Some of them are very, very horror. Some of them are more fantasy. Some of them are more mystery. Um, Sucker Punch is, uh, Sucker Punch is more of a, a mystery. It's, it's mystery and police procedural. Mm -hmm. uh, one of my most recent ones. And then Serpentine, which is the one just before that, it is, it is a mystery from the beginning, but it's also more a horror um, because the, I actually came up with uh, with a, shall we say, a disease for were animals that actually scared me and and disturbed me. When I can disturb me this far into the series, that says something. So because I mix genres, uh, I finally embraced the fact that that allowed me that some books are more mystery. They're oriented like a mystery. Some are more like a fantasy novel. Some are more like a horror novel, and um, and. And the, it's not just that these are my imaginary friends now. My fans also see them as friends. And they, they want to see and want to know what they're thinking and how, what they're doing. So it's a, real, it's a real balancing act to make sure that each book stands alone, but you have all this background. And 
where are we going to start? If I had not made the choice to have each opening unique so that you never pick up one of my books and, and wonder, did I read this already? I would have probably stayed with a more standard mystery format. But once I decided, made the choice that I wasn't going to have the openings reflect each other, that both made it more difficult to make sure that people pick it up and go, this is a mystery. The first chapter may not always seem like it is, but it also then began to open up to me enjoy the fact that I could write it in a more fantasy or a more horror or a more mystery, depending on which book it was. One of the things that Nita says early on that really struck me is she says, um, and you know, I, I tend to stick with early on because of the whole spoiler issue, but she says, um, brokenhearted in books and movies is reserved for romantic love, but all kinds of love can break your heart. What, what do you see lacking in books and movies that you try to incorporate into your own books? Well, we concentrate too much in most of our entertainment on romantic love. Mm -hmm. Or if it's not, then it's child parent love. But um, uh, I'm just going to say up front that, that, that I am bisexual. So when I say this, too much of it. So now you can date anybody you want, and that's great. But I think we're losing. I, um, I've had uh, my daughter when she was younger. I, she came and she says, I think I like, I think I have a crush on this girl. And I said, okay, that's fine. And, but as we talked about it, she, what she really had was she had friendship. Friendship is a type of love. And mm -hmm. I think sometimes in the zeal to be able to date anybody, we forget that sometimes we're just friends and that is valuable. I, I think, I think somehow we are losing this idea that friendship is not love, that friendship is alone. Friendship devoid of, of traditional romantic connections, friendship devoid of, of sex, friendship alone is love and is important. It's important to have friends you're not dating because if you start to date your friend, it changes the relationship and it will for our, forever be changed. Yeah. And, I, and I think that somehow it's, it's always like that. We try to embrace and open up certain things and then you forget that you take some losses along the way. Mm -hmm. And so I, I try to show that, that friendship is its own, it, it is its special own thing. It's important. And um, you can be brokenhearted in your family relationships and it doesn't have to be parent-child. It can be a cousin, an uncle, somebody you were close to. And then there's something horrible that happens and, and it divides you. It, it is any relationship we have can, can break our hearts. If you have a, a teacher that was your favorite teacher and then they say something horrible to you and, and, and crush you, then that, that breaks your heart. Um, I will not mention any names, but early on as a writer, I, I was given a list of names not to get in an elevator alone with at conventions. And some of them were writers that I had admired for years. So uh, it broke my heart a little to know that, that I couldn't just step into an elevator with them and be safe. So um, I try to reflect that, that, that it, we concentrate in entertainment too much on 
too much on romantic relationships and too much on just the parent child. Um, There's not enough, I I don't believe, or I'm not finding enough of friendship movies that may be changing. And I hope it is, but, but I'm not, I'm not aware of a big change. Yeah. I wonder what, if you find that there are, if there are truths about ourselves that, that paranormal fiction is particularly suited to address. I mean, I think about the fact that uh, reading this section about Asher and thinking about mental illness, are, are there are there parts of the human experience that you find easier to write about in a character who's not human? Well, I'm not sure I've ever written a character that wasn't in a supernatural world or situation. So I, this is just what I'm attracted to. It's what I've wanted to write since I was 14. But, but for other people, for people reading the books, what I'm hearing for feedback from them is that it helps them read characters in a fictional world. It's easier for them to think about therapy because Asher's a vampire. It's easier to be in this wonderful, fantastic world and have them talk about real things. Uh, one of the reasons that I started talking so openly about therapy um, is that I... Early in the books, Nathaniel's character is the first one to talk about therapy. Um, He is a recovering addict when we meet him, and you're always a recovering addict. I've done my research. You are never cured. You're recovering every day. Um, But he went to therapy. He has, to say Nathaniel has a bad childhood is like saying the Titanic is a, a, a boating accident. So he had a lot of things to to work on and the fact that he was on the streets as a as a runaway by by uh, seven um and he i mean just horrendous things happened to him but he went to therapy and he has a happy good life that works for him i have had people tell me they've gone into therapy because nathaniel did i had i've had multiple people tell me they went in to get their to get their addiction help for their addiction because nathaniel did and um, when people tell you that, that your fictional people are touching their real life like that, one of the reasons that I started talking more about therapy openly, so openly, is because it seems to help people in their own lives. And I, I'm sorry, if, if, you are, if you are one of the lucky few that had a blessed life and have no trauma, nothing bad ever happened to you, you perfectly love your family, then you don't need you don't need therapy. Good for you. The rest of us, we need some help. Um, and I would like before in my lifetime, before I toddle off this moral coil, I would really like it to be just as every day to call into work and say, I'm having a bad anxiety day. My therapist, I'm going to see them as it would to call in and say that I have broken my wrist and I'm at the doctor's getting that set. I would like to have both equally unstigmatized. Yeah. And, and it, it feels to me like we're, we're moving in that direction, but never fast enough. <laughs> well, not fast enough for the people that need it right now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, we like to end every episode of Inside the Writer's Studio with the same 10 questions. Uh, you should be able to answer each of them in just a few words, but hopefully they'll give us a little insight into you and into your writing. So okay. ready, we'll begin. Uh, what word do you love to work into your writing? Oh, I'm not going to be able to answer that one. Sorry. <laughs> okay. Next, next, next word. You can take a pass. <laughs> what word do you hate to encounter in other people's writing? 
any word that is a euphemism for body parts. Mm -hmm. uh, where's your favorite place to write? Uh, by the ocean with an mm -hmm. ocean view. I love my office, but no, I love, I love writing by the ocean. Where could you never write? When I'm dead. <laughs> to what rule of grammar do you pay least attention? I'm a dyslexic, so, um, oh, um, semicolons and commas. Yep. I read my work loud and put the commas where I want. And if a semicolon goes there and the copywriter says it goes there, okay. <laughs> what was the first book you remember reading? Um, I couldn't read till I was seven um, because of the dyslexia being undiagnosed. Um, I remember the first book being read to me was The Trip Induce. Uh, I now blanked on the author, which it was my favorite book. My grandmother read it to me so many times that it disappeared once. And when I married and left home, she produced the book. And I said, oh, you found it. And she says, no, I just couldn't bear reading it to you one more time. <laughs> what are you reading now? Um, I am reading Atomic Habits by uh, James Clear. Mm -hmm. um, Nonfiction book, the last fiction book I read was uh, Patient Zero by, J by Jonathan Mayberry. What book would you like to have written? I don't envy. I don't envy other writers. I'm writing exactly what I want to write. And I am, so I, I am just blessed. Yeah. So I, I don't have I don't have writer envy in that way. So you might not have an answer for this question, but I'll answer it anyhow. What what sort of book would you like to write, but probably never will? Um, I would like a one of those fictional memoir ones where and I I've tried a few times to sit down, but it just doesn't speak for me. Speak to me as a writer. And finally, what would you like to hear a reader tell you? They have surprised me so much over the years um, that uh, I, I have had more compliments for more things than I ever dreamt as a writer. I, I, I really can't, I have the best fans. Yeah. So um, I can tell you some of the things they've told me that have made me cry and, and in happy ways and sad ways, but there's nothing that I've been waiting to hear that they haven't already told me. Mm -hmm. Well, this has been Inside the Writer's Studio. I'm your host, Charlie Lovett, and my guest today has been Laurel K. Hamilton, whose novel, Smolder, is available wherever books are sold. Laurel, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Inside the Writer's Studio is sponsored by Bookmarks, a literary nonprofit that runs the largest annual book festival in the Carolinas and operates a community gathering place and nonprofit independent bookstore in downtown Winston-Salem, North Carolina. To find out more about Bookmarks and all its programs, visit www.bookmarksnc.org. Inside the Writer's Studio is proud to be affiliated with Libro FM. Unlike other audiobook platforms, Libro FM supports your local independent bookstore. Whether you buy a single book or, like me, a monthly subscription, you can link your account to your local store or to Bookmarks to support literary community. For a special two-for-one offer, go to libro.fm and use the discount code WRITERS. If you've enjoyed Inside the Writer's Studio, please consider leaving a rating or review online at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Inside the Writer's Studio posts new episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month. 
On our next episode, we'll be featuring something a little bit different, so tune in to find out. Until then, thanks for listening, and may you read with wonder and write with passion. Thank you.